Hello, Willingdon Church family and all who join us this weekend. I hope you have already grabbed your beverage. I have my Egypt mug today to remind us to pray for Egypt and the Muslim world. Ramadan began this week. I'll come back to Egypt later in the message. As we journey through this COVID-19 shutdown with many of our normal activities being stripped away, like going to the office, going to school, sports activities, and so on, the days can start to blend together as time passes. Each day is kind of like the last one. Sometimes it's hard to imagine life returning to normal. I've been reminded of a book I read in university, Man's Search for Meaning, written by Viktor Frankl in 1946, just after World War II. Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, as well as a Holocaust survivor. He endured Auschwitz and a few other concentration camps. We're definitely not going through a concentration camp experience right now, but there are some interesting parallels that shed light on our current journey. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Frankl chronicles his experiences as a prisoner and identifies three common responses to the camp experience. One, shock during the initial admission phase to the camp. Two, a certain apathy after becoming accustomed to camp experience. And third, bitterness and even disillusionment after surviving and being liberated from the camp experience. Did we not find ourselves in a state of shock when the shutdown was announced? As the days pass by, do we find ourselves more focused or more listless, apathetic? What do we imagine life will be like when we are finally liberated from isolation and social distancing? Frankel observed that those who navigated life well during and after the camp experience, they possessed a sense of meaning. In fact, he believed that people are primarily driven by a a striving to find a meaning in one's life, and that it is this sense of meaning that enables people to overcome difficult, even dehumanizing experiences. If Frankl is right, then today's text could not be more timely for us because in today's text, Paul declares with utmost clarity the meaning of his life. You see, Paul had a sense of purpose that enabled him to not only survive imprisonment, but thrive while chained by the Roman state. So what was it that gave Paul such a strong sense of purpose Writing from a Roman jail around A.D. 62, with the clarity that his imprisonment provided, Paul, he shared the secret to a hope-filled, a joy-filled life, even when the authorities had placed his life under significant restrictions. Let's read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
The Philippians, they grieve Paul's difficult circumstances. They're like family to him. They have great affection for him. And for this reason, they sent a gift to him with Epaphroditus, one of their members. He appears later in in chapter 2. Millennials and Gen Zers, they may have a hard time just imagining a world where you cannot do a Zoom call, text, or use WeChat and discover immediately what is going on. In Paul's day, you would send a letter and then just wait for weeks, sometimes months, for a response. And in the meantime, you prayed and imagined what might be happening. In his letter of response to the Philippians, Paul wants them to know something about his circumstances, but more importantly, about his emotional state, his mental perspective. His perspective is quite different from theirs. Why, we might ask. Well, years prior, Paul had already seen God work miraculously in a Philippian jail. Remember when he crossed over to Europe from Asia Minor? Philippi was the first city he evangelized. The story is recorded in Acts chapter 16. On that first visit, Paul and Silas were imprisoned for expelling demons from a fortune-telling slave girl. As Paul and Silas sang worship songs in their cell, there was an earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, the prison doors flew open, and their chains fell off. The Philippian jailer, seeing what had happened and feeling responsibility for it, he was ready to kill himself with his sword, but Paul, he urged him not to. All the prisoners had remained in their cells, and that night, the Philippian jailer and his whole family came to faith in Jesus. Paul had learned that God could do gospel-sized miracles even when he was confined to a cell. So now, in Rome, instead of dwelling on past experiences, stewing over current injustices, Paul is attentive to what God is doing in his particular circumstance and season of life. God has been sovereignly at work despite the chains and, and isolation. So what tangible evidence does Paul have of God being at work? Well, first of all, Paul says, the whole imperial guard of the emperor has heard the good news of Jesus. The emperor's own elite troops, they cycle through here every four hours, and it's become clear to them that my imprisonment is because of my solidarity with Jesus. Second, most of the church family in Rome, living at the very heart of the empire, instead of being intimidated by my suffering, they've become even more courageous, even more confident in their witness. In fact, they're speaking the word of God with extraordinary fearlessness. So what hinders us today in our witness? COVID-19 restrictions? Fear of rejection? The ridicule of family and friends? Alienation from the wider society because of its contrary perspective? In his second letter to Timothy, also written from prison, Paul exclaims, the word of God, it's not bound, it's not hindered. If the word of God is not moving forward in our sphere of influence today, 
we can be sure that the problem is not with the gospel. So, do we need to reconsider our current circumstances? Are we too focused on what has been lost? Are we seeing the gospel move forward? Here are some examples of what we see God doing today. There's an unprecedented opportunity to proclaim the gospel through the internet. There's an unprecedented opportunity to connect with people personally through phone calls, Zoom calls, all forms of social media. We hear stories of our church family sharing the good news of Jesus in retirement villages, in their neighborhoods, engaging their neighbors in community chat rooms, having very meaningful conversations with work colleagues and fellow students. It's so encouraging. No matter what, the gospel remains unhindered in our day. The advance of the gospel among the imperial guard and the new boldness of the church in Rome gives Paul reason to rejoice. But his joy, it goes even deeper. Listen to what he writes in the following verses. This is in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. There's an obvious contrast in these verses. Paul's friends, they do preach Christ, as do his rivals, But his friends do it out of goodwill, and his rivals out of envy and partisanship. His friends do it in love, his rivals out of selfish ambition. His friends do it knowing something, his rivals do it supposing something. His friends do it knowing that Paul was imprisoned for the defense of the gospel. His rivals do it supposing that they can stir up trouble for him while he is in chains. His friends, they do it in truth. His rivals do it in falsehood, with pretense, as a mask for selfish ends. Who are these people who proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition and rivalry? It appears they are Christians who preach a genuinely sound gospel, but they're at odds with Paul. They're motivated by a desire to harm him even more, to literally add pressure to his chains. They seek to use his imprisonment to move forward their personal agenda. About 10 years ago, I was in conversation with a friend who had just been released from prison in Asia. He was in his home country. He had shared the gospel with fellow inmates. A good number had come to faith. His imprisonment had encouraged the pastors of that country. God was obviously at work. At the same time, an envious church leader was trying to destroy his ministry by making all kinds of unfounded accusations. Another organization was angry because of his boldness. They believed that his bold proclamation of the gospel would jeopardize their good standing with the national government. My friend graciously commented, why can't we just 
proclaim the gospel and love the church together. No bitterness in his voice. I believe there's something about being in prison that removes the edge. It enables you to extend grace to others. It, it removes the pettiness. You see farther. Paul writes in verse 18, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Why such large-heartedness, Paul? How can you rejoice in the proclamation of the gospel by your rivals? I believe Paul would say this. One, God is sovereign over my circumstances. God works not just in spite of, but through adverse circumstances. He always accomplishes his purposes. Two, my passion is for Jesus and his gospel. To follow Jesus is to follow the way of the cross. No matter what, what matters is the advance of the gospel, not my personal reputation. And three, although Christian character is really critical, the gospel is actually more powerful than the character of those who preach it. So no matter what, the gospel is the power of God in our day. Paul rejoiced not in the manner in which his rivals preached, but in the fact that the good news of Jesus was being proclaimed. At Willingdon, we're careful not to spend our time attacking other preachers, attacking other ministries, because we believe that if we proclaim the gospel clearly, and this is our focus, we'll be equipped to be discerning. Personally, I believe there is too much rivalry over turf, too much competition for viewership, too many petty theological disagreements. Paul's kind attitude toward fellow believers who make life hard for him serves as a model for the Philippians and for us. We should be celebrating what God is doing through all churches across Canada and around the world who proclaim the good news of Jesus. Paul's commitment to Jesus and the advance of his gospel just filled him with complete joy. And so if we lack joy today in our current circumstances, we need to listen to what Paul says in the following verses. Paul, he lays his heart bare. He speaks of a very real tension in his soul, and he shares his deepest motivation in life. What truly gives his life meaning? What gives him joy? So let's read the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul asks the Philippians to pray for him. 
He believes their prayers will change things. He believes that through their prayers, God will graciously supply the Holy Spirit. And by the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the name of Jesus will be magnified through his life. God will bring glory to himself through Paul. This is his eager expectation. Moises Silva, a commentator, writes this, It's indeed a sobering thought that our spiritual relationship with God is not a purely individualistic concern because we're dependent on the Spirit's power in answer to the intercessory prayers of God's people. That's so true. During the Welsh Revival, 1904, one of the worst alcoholics in a Welsh village by the name of Jim Stakes, he came to faith in Jesus. And a few years later, a man by the name of Rees Howells was in prayer at 10 a.m. in the morning. And quite unexpectedly, Jim Stakes came to mind. Howells knew there was a battle for his soul and spent an hour praying for him. That very evening, there was a, a man at Howells' door. It was Jim Stakes. He had walked three kilometers because that morning, precisely at 10 a.m., while he was working at the mine, Reese Howells had come clearly to his mind. Jim was in great financial need, and God had prepared Howells to assist him. How are we helping others during this COVID-19 crisis? Are we praying for others? Where are we going for help? Paul asks for prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit so that he might come out of his crisis unashamed, courageous, and having proclaimed the gospel boldly. Paul, he hopes for deliverance in these verses. The deliverance that he hopes for could be by life or by death. It could mean physical deliverance from prison or the ultimate deliverance through death to life eternal. Whether by living or by dying, Paul desires that his whole life honor Jesus. He wants to honor Jesus in the way he lives and in the way he eventually dies. As followers of Jesus today, whether we live or die, we're assured of deliverance. We will receive physical deliverance for this life on earth or ultimate deliverance from all suffering, struggle, and pain to be with Jesus. No matter what, we are assured of deliverance today. When it comes to living or dying, Paul finds it really difficult to choose. His earnest desire is to depart and be carried into the presence of Jesus. That, he says, is far better than living on earth. That is what he lives for. In verse 25, Paul says he believes he will remain physically alive to serve the Philippians. He believes God will use him to help them grow in their understanding of the gospel and and their transformation into the likeness of Jesus. And as a result, they will go deeper in their experience of the gospel. They will experience true joy. This is not the self-satisfied delight experienced when everything is just going our way, when we're experiencing physical and emotional comfort. No, it's the settled peace that is ours. When we understand that God is sovereignly accomplishing his purposes through adverse circumstances, 
when we experience the, the helping presence of the Holy Spirit, when we are focused on the fame of Jesus and the advance of his gospel, no matter what, we can experience complete joy today. To understand the secret to complete joy, we need to understand, digest, meditate on, absorb Paul's main point. It's in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This short, pithy statement, it sums up Paul's reason for existence, the the very meaning of his life. Everything hangs on it. Now, understanding it will require some unpacking. Paul says, Jesus is the reason for my life. To become like him as I journey through life's challenges. To follow his calling on my life no matter what. To serve him no matter what. To be aligned with his eternal purposes. To live to meet him and see him face to face. He says, my life, it finds its total meaning in Jesus. I want Jesus and Jesus alone to give inspiration, direction, meaning, purpose to my existence. I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to participate in his sufferings. And dying, well, that's gain. It's to my advantage. It means the goal of my life has been reached. You see, physical death has lost its sting. Physical death, it just catapults us forward. So Paul can live abandoned to God's will in the present because his life is oriented toward eternity with Jesus. He's a man of one passion, Jesus and Jesus alone. Can we honestly say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? When I started to follow Jesus, I adopted Philippians 121 as my life verse. Really easy to memorize. And it sums up the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. But do I live it? Too often for me, it is for me to live as Christ, plus work, studies, leisure, some money, relationships, vacations, and so on. And all too often, the plus factor has become my primary passion. COVID-19 is a blessing in this regard. It strips some of the pluses from my life, and it frees me to focus on the core, on Jesus and Jesus alone. Has it done that for you? This short statement, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, has served me over and over again in different seasons of my life. Why would I leave home and family to be a missionary in a foreign land? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why plant churches in a noisy, polluted, unsafe megalopolis when I could enjoy the comforts of suburban Canada? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why get on a plane that looks like it's nearing its last flight in a fourth world country? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. No matter what. To live is Christ and to die is gain each day of our lives. So here's another reason why I have my Egypt mug with me today. During the Arab Spring, 2011-2012, I was invited to provide some coaching for the leadership team of a satellite TV program out of Cairo. 
and participate in, my, in some revival meetings on the Nile. In 2012, of course, the Mubarak regime fell, and in the social upheaval, churches were being burned by angry mobs. It was unsettled time. And Judy, my wife, was scheduled to go with me. As we approached our departure date, family members came by our home, some in tears. Why are you going? What about your children? We prayed, and we went. And we're so glad we did. Tourist destinations were empty, At the pyramids at Giza, the only ones there were some lonely Egyptian police officers, a Korean couple, and ourselves. More importantly, the churches were so grateful we had shown up. Just a small gesture of solidarity. And we had the profound joy of participating in revival meetings in a city on the Nile. They had been praying and fasting for a month. We will never forget the worship. They were hanging on every word. We will never forget the response to the preaching of the gospel. We will never forget the sweet presence of Jesus with his people in a really difficult time. At different points in my journey, I have understood that to live is not to seek my own comfort, advancement, success, pleasure, but to seek to know Jesus and the advancement of his gospel. And death will only free me to be with Jesus. So may this short, powerful statement, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, sum up the reason for my existence and yours. Because in Jesus is found the most profound meaning for life and the deepest joy. May it be true, not just in a few moments, but in all of life. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you again for your word. And thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active. Lord, may we, as your followers, say with Paul, Oh, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. May that sum up, Lord, the meaning for our lives. And may we long to be with you. Father, in this day, in the midst of COVID-19, may we be inspired by your spirit to share the gospel in creative ways, unusual ways. And may we trust you to do a work in our day beyond anything we could ever imagine. Because you are sovereign over this moment. And you are accomplishing your purposes. And we can rest in that. Father, may we trust you with all all that we are, in Jesus' name. And now I want to say a prayer for some of you who maybe haven't surrendered your hearts to Jesus yet, but today you want to do that. So I just ask you to follow me in my prayer. Father, I thank you for the gift of life. And in this moment, I just acknowledge that I've been living my life independent of you. I've just been going my own way, and I really need your help. And so, Jesus, I thank you for dying in my place, for taking my sin upon yourself. I thank you that you offer to me forgiveness for sin. So I ask you for forgiveness, and I ask you to change the way I live. I ask you to help me to follow you, to know what it means to follow you. Send your Holy Spirit to live within me. I thank you for the gift of life, and I commit myself to you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, then I'd encourage you to click on the I commit myself to Jesus button and then go to the Get Connected button. If you just prayed to receive Jesus or you're visiting us for the first time, go to the Get Connected button on the front page of our website and we would love to connect with you to help you in your journey.